Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this evening to Revelation for the first time. Revelation uh, chapter 1. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 for our time of study in the Word uh, tonight. We're uh, going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 1. Why will we be studying the book of Revelation in the coming months and perhaps uh, years uh, or decades? Well, because Jesus is the Lord of history. Jesus is the Lord of this present time in history. And because history is heading towards a predetermined climax in which Christ is going to overcome the rulers of this world and establish his reign forever. We're going to be studying this book because the book of Revelation puts these truths before us in a way that no other book of the Bible does. We're studying the book of Revelation because in our present day of upheaval and great uncertainty, we need to be treated to a prolonged look at the Lord Jesus Christ as we find him revealed in the book of Revelation. And we need to hear what he has to say to the church during this time. We're going to begin this evening by looking at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1, which essentially serves as a, a book cover for the book of Revelation, a cover that is designed to capture our attention and to draw us into the contents of the book of Revelation. Speaking of book covers, I've written uh, one published book in my lifetime. It's entitled A Gospel Primer for Christians, which was published back in 2008. Before the primer was published, I collaborated with the publisher on a cover design, and we agreed together to go with a Puritan sort of look with a sad-looking man, for those of you that have not seen it, a sad-looking man bowed over a scroll with his hand over his eyes when lying before him on the scroll are, is a scroll, and on that scroll are the words, there is now no condemnation. All the man had to do is to remove his hand from his eyes and he would see that there is no need for sorrow and for weeping any longer. I saw that uh, image and I liked it. I thought it captured the essence of the book, uh, which is expressed in the subtitle of the book, which is learning to see the glories of God's love. So we went with that and the book was published and I was very quickly surprised to see the reaction of some to the cover of that book. In the first place, the old-looking cover caused some readers to think that I was a Puritan writer who had died hundreds of years ago. So imagine their surprise when they discovered that I was alive. In the second place, there were some who did not like the cover at all, and they were not afraid to say so. J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Two years ago, he wrote some positive words about the gospel primer, and he said this, and I quote, this book 
has one of the most ridiculous and unattractive covers I have ever seen. But it is one of my favorites, unquote. Another reviewer on Amazon gave the primer a nice review, but on the title of his review he said, and I quote, this is a perfect example of not judging a wonderful book by its ugly, outdated cover, unquote. And there are others like that that I could share uh, with you. Go figure. Um, I still like the cover of the Gospel Primer, and I'm glad to see God using the book in spite of the ways that some people have reacted to the cover. But I begin on this note as we approach our passage for tonight because there is a sense in which, as I've said, the first eight verses of the book of Revelation contain what you might expect to find on the front and the back cover of a book, and it captures beautifully the essence of the book of Revelation. It lets you know what you can expect from the book, and it makes you want to open the book and read what's in it. And tonight, I want us to look at these eight verses and observe six features, six features of the tantalizing cover that John provides for the book of Revelation. And by the way, you'll find the sermon outline in the same document that the worship lyrics uh, are that you were using for our worship earlier uh, this evening. The first feature of this cover, the first thing we find on this cover is, number one, a title and a summation of the book. A title and summation of the book. Listen to what John says beginning in verse 1. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. The word revelation is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get our English word apocalypse. This word means literally uncovering or unveiling. Biblically, the word speaks of the unveiling of that which could not otherwise be known by us if it were not revealed to us by God. What is revealed in the book of Revelation are truths and realities we would have never arrived at on our own. John calls this book the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning not only that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, but also that it is a revelation that was His. It belonged to Him, and it was His to give, and it was delivered by Him for the purpose of unveiling truth about Him. Some people find the book of Revelation hard to understand, filled with many mysteries, and indeed it is. And there are many challenges in this book. But the very first words of this book remind us that Christ's purpose in giving us this book about Himself is to reveal, to uncover, to make known, not to conceal and confuse. Keep in mind that John had been with Jesus for three years when Jesus was on earth in His public ministry, and John saw the glory of Jesus revealed in wonderful ways, and he wrote what he saw in the Gospel of John. Yet in the book of Revelation, John plans to record for us a revelation 
of Jesus Christ surpassing anything that he saw when Christ was on earth before. A revelation of Christ that will leave John himself so blown away that he will be left lying on the ground as a dead man before this first chapter is even over. As John describes it in verse 1, this revelation is something which God gave him. In other words, God gave to Jesus to show to his Jesus bondservants. In other words, God the Father has granted Jesus Christ permission to unveil himself to John in this way so that John can then write down what he sees and show Christ's glory to Christ's bondservants. And notice the target audience stated in this verse, Christ's bondservants or slaves. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to satisfy the idle curiosity of non-believers who want to know the future. Its purpose is to give perspective to those who are slaves of Jesus Christ. If you have believed in Jesus, you are His slave, and this book is for you. According to verse 1, this revelation of Jesus Christ that John intends to show relates to, look what he says in verse 1, the things which must soon take place. John uses the word things, plural, to speak of all the events that will unfold in the revelation of Christ that he's going to record for us in this amazing book because Christ will be revealed through all of the things that we see unfolding through the chapters of this book. Christ is not simply going to be revealed in Revelation 19 at His second coming. He will be revealed through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath that are poured out as the wrath of the Lamb is poured out upon the earth. Jesus Christ will be revealed in heaven as the Lion and the Lamb who is worthy to open the book of judgments upon the world. He will be revealed in the ways He manifests Himself to John, even in chapter 1 and in the ways He speaks to the seven churches of Asia in chapters 2 and 3. So the whole book is essentially a, an unveiling of Jesus Christ in various ways. Regarding the things that are related to this revelation of Jesus Christ, John speaks of them as including, look what he says, the things which must take place soon. Notice the word must. This is the language of necessity and certainty. Speaking of things that will come upon the world because of God's sovereign decree. And the word translated soon here speaks of things that are very near in time. Or it could speak of something that whenever it does happen, it will happen swiftly. Keep in mind that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. On God's timetable, even something that is a thousand years in the future is soon in God's book. Regardless of when these things that John is talking about will happen, when they do begin to happen, they will happen with the swiftness of a flash flood for which unbelievers will have no opportunity to prepare. Regarding this revelation of Jesus Christ, John speaks 
in verse 1 and says, And he, talking about Christ, sent and communicated it, this revelation, by his angel to his bondservant, John. The Greek word translated communicated is the Greek word for sign, interestingly enough, that is used as a verb here. Literally, we can translate John as saying, he sent and signified it by his angel to his bondservant John. In other words, many of the things that Christ is going to want to communicate to John in this book will be communicated through signs and symbols, and some of them are actually pretty freaky. And as we work through this book in the coming months, we're going to do our best to try to understand these signs and these amazing symbols because they are intended by Christ to reveal the truth about Him and the truth of what is to come upon the world. Notice how John says that Christ sent and communicated by His angel to His bondservant John. The book of Revelation, you'll notice, is filled with mention of angels. Angels literally show up in every single chapter of this book except two, chapter 4 and chapter 13. And we'll end up seeing the word angel in some form 71 times in the book of Revelation. At times, we're going to observe an angelic being who is kind of with John and communicates with John and explains things to him and in the end, you can write this reference down in Revelation 22, verse 16. Jesus will say to John these words, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And John is alerting us to this angelic involvement here, even in verse 1. Now, while speaking of Christ here in verse 1, John speaks of himself as his Speaking of Christ's bondservant, John. John has already spoken of all of Christ's people in verse 1 as Christ's bondservants or as Christ's slaves. But here John very humbly refers to himself as one of Christ's slaves as well. This is a beautifully humble self-description of John given the fact that he was a top dog apostle of Jesus Christ, the only apostle still alive at this point in A.D. 95. If John wanted to, John could have referred to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have referred to himself as one of the top three apostles of Jesus Christ. He could have described himself as the lone surviving apostle of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he is content to refer to himself as Christ's slave or bondservant. We know that John had a very intimate relationship with his Lord over many decades of his life and that he loved Jesus with a deep affection. And yet here he is, who has a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, referring to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, showing us that deep affection for Jesus is perfectly compatible with slavery to Jesus Christ. In fact, John would say that the two are tied together. He would tell you that he is a slave of Jesus Christ, completely held by the cords of Christ's love 
for him, completely cared for and provided for by Jesus, who is his master over these last 60 years. John has encountered the amazing love of Jesus, and he's fully surrendered to Christ's amazing love and is happily, willfully the slave of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest freedom of all. Speaking of himself in verse 2, John describes himself as he, look at verse 2, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, notice the threefold description that John gives of the things that he's going to testify to in the book of Revelation. The Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and all that he saw. This language tells us that everything that is going to follow from the pen of John on these pages of the book of Revelation is the Word of God. It is the testimony of or about Jesus Christ, and it is the record of everything that John saw. There's a second feature of this tantalizing cover that John provides for us in the book of Revelation in this passage, and that is number two, a blessing. A blessing on those who respond rightly to the contents of Revelation. You've been listening to the pastoral devotions this week. Uh, you've heard a lot about blessing, and here John speaks a blessing to his audience. The book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that comes with its own blessing for those who read it. Listen to the blessing that John speaks in verse 3. He says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. The word translated blessed here is the same word that is used throughout the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. It speaks of a received happiness that is enviable. It means to be enviably happy. This word assumes the presence of a third party who is looking at the blessed person and who envies that person's lot and thinks, man, I would love to be in their shoes. That's the blessing John speaks. And the blessing that John speaks here is not pronounced upon all people but only on those who respond to the book of Revelation in a particular way. First of all, John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. The reason John speaks of a singular reader, notice that in the text, and plural hearers is because he's envisioning the setting of a church gathering in which a person stands in front of the congregation and reads the text of Revelation out loud to them. And the hearers are the congregants who hear the text of Revelation being read to them by the reader in the context of the gathered assembly. So essentially, John is saying, blessed are those who show up for church. Blessed is the one who reads the book of Revelation to the gathered assembly. And blessed are all those gathered who hear it being read 
in the context of the gathering community. But John doesn't stop there. Someone who merely reads aloud or hears the book of Revelation is not automatically blessed. They must do something else. John says, blessed are those who heed the things which are written in it. The word heed means to keep or to watch over. It means to pay attention to the words of Revelation, to study them. It means to keep watch over this book's place in your heart as you take its teaching with you through life. It means to treasure these words and to live your life in obedience to the commands that you find in the book of Revelation and to live in a way that is responsive to the truths and the prophecies contained in this amazing book. Here in verse 3, John pronounces a blessing on anyone who reads and who hears and who gives obedient heed to the book of Revelation. Such a person will have the blessing of God upon his life. Such a person is to be envied in this life and in the next. Does that make you want to go through Revelation? The reason John gives for this blessing is found at the end of the verse when he says, for the time is near. In other words, the time for the fulfillment of the things that are prophesied in this book is near. Sure, it may take 2,000 plus years for all of these things to come to pass, but even through that entire 2,000 plus year period, these things were always right at the door, very near, ready to break in at any moment. And when these things do all come to pass, we will all look back and realize how near they were to us all along. Blessed is he, John says, who reads aloud to the gathered assembly and those gathered who hear the words of the prophecy of this book and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. This is the time to pay attention to this book, John says. And the time is even nearer to us today than it was for his original readers in the first century. There's a third feature of this tantalizing cover that John puts on the book of Revelation. Number three, a wish for spiritual bounty to churches from the triune God. A wish for spiritual blessing and bounty to the churches from the triune God. Listen to John's heartfelt desire for his readers. Verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's so much here. Notice how he begins. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. We're going to learn the names of these seven churches in the next couple chapters. We're going to learn that these seven churches were experiencing challenges during this time, some of them because of persecution, others because of false teaching, and others 
were a little too comfortable and straying from the Lord. All of them needed a word from Jesus Christ that will come to them in chapters 2 and 3 of this book. And then everything beyond that is going to be for all of them. But before John gets into all of that, notice this benediction that he delivers to these seven churches and to us. He says, grace to you and peace. We see this in many of the epistles of the New Testament. John is speaking to whole congregations, and he's saying, may the blessings associated with God's unmerited favor, and may His shalom, may His peace and wholeness come to you and be your experience. And as to where this grace and peace come from, we all know that they can only come from God. And John seems here to mention all three persons of the triune Godhead as the source of this grace and peace. First of all, he speaks of God the Father and says, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. This expression speaks of the unchangeableness and everlastingness of God, speaking of Him as the self-existent One, the One who is everlasting, the One who is and who was and who is to come. Next, we see in verse 4 that John wishes for this grace and peace to come to his readers from God the Father and, look what he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And all God's people said, what? I mean, as soon as we read these words about the seven spirits, we're mystified and we wonder who John is referring to. We're all familiar with the Holy Spirit of God, but we're not accustomed to hearing about the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. Most commentators agree that we should take this expression as referring to the Holy Spirit. And we can paraphrase John as speaking of the sevenfold spirit referring to the Spirit who is given to God's people and who ministers to us in utter completeness and fullness, which is represented by the number seven. It might interest you to know that in Isaiah eleven two, Isaiah speaks of the Spirit of God and describes the Spirit with seven genitive phrases or of phrases describing Him as the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah 11.2. This is a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11. And some commentators suggest that this may be what John is referring to here in this passage in Revelation. Either way, acknowledging that there's maybe a level of mystery here that is beyond our ability to fully comprehend, John describes this sevenfold spirit as being before God's throne, belonging to the Father, standing ready to do the Father's bidding, whatever that may be. Completing the Trinity, 
John wishes upon his readers this grace and peace from God the Father, from God the sevenfold Spirit, and, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John speaks of Jesus in three ways here. First of all, he speaks of Jesus as the faithful witness. Drink that in. Jesus is the faithful witness who always speaks the truth and whose words are always 100% reliable in every way and perfectly spoken. And boy, do we need someone like this nowadays. Amen? With election season in full swing, now we are hearing a lot from people who have a lot to say and we're having to sift through all the stuff that they are saying to determine what is worthy of our trust and what is not. And we must always keep our guard up as we're listening. When we read the news nowadays, it's honestly hard to know what to believe sometimes. And I find myself always double-checking, triple-checking to see if what someone is saying is really true. But guys, with Jesus, He's the faithful witness who sees reality perfectly and who always speaks truth exactly how it should be spoken. We can literally let our guard down when He's talking because everything He says is going to be true and perfectly spoken with no corruption at all. We can always completely trust whatever He says even as He reveals Himself to us in this book and as He tells us of the things to come. Secondly, John describes Jesus as the firstborn of the dead in the sense that He is the first person ever to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Many others will follow Jesus and being raised from the dead on the day of resurrection But Jesus is the most preeminent one among them all. You know why? Because He's the one who's going to be raising them all. All others who will be raised from the dead are going to be raised by Him, but He was the one who laid down His life and then took it up again of His own initiative, making Him the firstborn or the preeminent one of the dead. John also describes Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And guys, this is not a prophetic description of something that will be true in some future distant day. It is the truth now. In Matthew 28, after Jesus' resurrection, He tells us that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here we see this truth affirmed. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Even in this very day, in the year 2020, all the kings and presidents and prime ministers of the earth are serving at Jesus' pleasure. And they rule only because He allows them to and because they serve His purpose of ushering human history towards the great day of His coming. Regardless of who wins in the upcoming presidential election, 
you can know that whoever wins will serve at Christ's pleasure. And only because they serve His purposes of bringing history to the climax described in the book of Revelation when Christ comes in triumph and establishes His reign upon the earth. Grace to you. Peace to you, John says, to all of us, from God the Father, from God the sevenfold Spirit, and from God the Son, Jesus Christ, may God's unmerited favor and all the blessings of salvation be yours. And may wholeness and wellness spiritually be yours from the triune God. And then John is essentially saying, and everything I'm about to say to you in this book, in this letter, is designed to serve this end. There's a fourth feature of this tantalizing cover that John puts on the book of Revelation, and that is number four, a doxology, a doxology of praise to Jesus Christ. You know, we sometimes speak of people who look like they've seen a ghost. Imagine what John looks like as he's picking up his pen to write, having seen what he has seen. He has seen something more fantastic than any ghost. He has seen the glorified Lord Jesus unveiled in unmitigated fullness. He has been to the future and has come back, as it were, and he cannot help but explode in this doxology of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 5 and 6. Listen to this doxology in these verses. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, and He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are three things Jesus does that John describes in these verses. First of all, John describes Jesus as Him who loves us. Literally, John describes him as the lover of us. The participle that is translated loves here is present tense, reminding us that Jesus did not just love us in the moment that he died for us on the cross or even maybe on the day of our conversion, but he loved us then and he loves us still even after all the times that you and I have failed him. And let him down. In chapter 2, Jesus is going to talk to the Ephesian church and tell them that they left their first love. But the reason he's bringing that up to them is because Jesus never leaves his first love. He never abandons his love for us. He always loves us with a love that never wavers or cools. And that's good news for all of us who know him. Imagine coming to Jesus on a given day and observing that He just doesn't seem to love you like He did the day before. And you're left thinking, what did I do? What did I do? What did I say? Was it something I said? Was it something I did? And that He, His love would fluctuate in this way. No, He loves, continuously loves us. Secondly, John describes Jesus as the one who released us from what? from our sins. How? By His blood. Literally, He loosed us from our sins, from the guilt of our sins and from the power of our sins. 
And notice, guys, whose sins Jesus delivered us from. Whose sins did Jesus deliver you from if you're a Christian? The text says our sins, your sins, my sins. Think of the sins that have bound you and left you plagued with guilt and that afflict you still. If you have believed in Jesus, you can say Jesus through His blood has loosed me from these sins. The guilt and the power of them. You know, nowadays there's a real emphasis on pursuing what is called social justice, wherein people work hard to free people from the sins and oppressions of others. The law of love would dictate that we actually be devoted to some of these causes, yet we must remember that when Jesus came at His first coming, He did not deliver us from the sins of other people. He first told us about our sins, and then He died to deliver all who believe in Him from our own sins. This doesn't mean that the sins of others are not important. It just means that your sins are the most important thing that you have to reckon with. And Jesus has loosed you from your sins if you have believed in Him. And He accomplished this deliverance, look what John says, by His blood. In other words, by His blood that was shed for us when He died upon a cross. His blood atoned for our sins and made the forgiveness of God possible for those who believe in Him. Our sin problem was so serious, guys, that, that only blood could deliver us. And it was Jesus who accomplished this deliverance through His cross, dying on that cross as the perfect spotless Lamb, shedding His blood in order to deliver us from our own sins. You know, if you wish to give yourself to the cause of justice and seek to deliver people from the sins and oppressions of others, that would actually be a loving thing to do. But the most loving thing of all that you can do for those that you are seeking to deliver from the sins of others is to make sure that you preach to the oppressed people that you are seeking to deliver and tell them that their greatest need is to be delivered from their own sins and tell them that Jesus has come to deliver them from their own sins, the systemic sin of their own heart that has become institutionalized in their own hearts. Otherwise, if you don't deliver that message you will only succeed in creating rioters like we've seen the last several weeks who self-righteously condemn the evil of others, all the while committing horrible injustices themselves. Evil runs through every human heart. And the greatest oppression from which we all need to be delivered is the oppression of the evil that is inside of each one of us. And John says that Jesus has accomplished this for those who believe in Him and become His slaves. He has loosed them from their sins by His blood that was shed for them at the cross. According to John's words here, Christ did not just deliver us from our sins, but John 
continues in verse 6 and says, And He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. Christ has saved us from our sins and then united believers in Him into a single kingdom, the kingdom of God, ruled over by Jesus. We were once living in the kingdom of Satan, but now we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We once were all divided into our own separate kingdoms, each of us sitting as petty tyrants ruling over our separate little kingdoms of me. Yet Christ has freed us from our selfishness and united us all under the reign of Him in the kingdom of God. And He made each of us into priests to His God and Father. He turned us into a people who can now enter into the Holy of Holies and intercede with God on behalf of others and then turn and speak to others on behalf of God. And ladies, listen to this. Whereas the priesthood once belonged only to men who were of the tribe of Levi, Christ has made every single one of us who know Him men and women priests who have free access at all times into the presence of His God and Father. The priesthood of the believer belongs to men and women who have believed in Jesus. To this one who has accomplished all of this for us, John says to him, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John so loves Jesus that he wants Jesus to receive all glory and all dominion at the present time and forever and then forever beyond the forever. That's what he's saying. A person who is truly captured by, by Jesus, by the redemption and the love of Jesus, longs from the heart for Jesus to have dominion over every square inch of their lives and over every square inch of the universe through every second of time, henceforth and forever. And John has never felt more strongly about this than he does now after seeing all that he has seen, recording it in the book of Revelation. There's a fifth feature of the tantalizing cover that John places on the book of Revelation that is worthy of our attention. Number five, a hearty guarantee of Jesus' triumphant coming. A hearty guarantee of Jesus' triumphant coming. Listen to John's guarantee in verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. Notice the word behold at the beginning of verse 7. This is a word that's going to show up 25 times in the book of Revelation. And John uses this word because he really wants us to look and see and hear the promise that he makes in verse 7. First of all, he speaks of Jesus and said, He is coming with the clouds. And the verb coming is present tense, as if Jesus' coming has already started, as if the events that will culminate in His coming have already been set in motion. John's promise here is clearly a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 
Daniel 7.13, where Daniel says, listen to this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And here in Revelation 1, John is saying to all of us, that prophecy of Daniel is still alive and well. Jesus is coming with the clouds of heaven. Secondly, John says, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What an amazing statement this is. This statement points us back to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. You might want to write this passage down, Zechariah 12.10, where God speaks these words of promise. Listen to what God says in Zechariah. God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And here in Revelation 1-7, John is saying that this prophecy of Zechariah is alive and well and will come true. There are people right now, our world is full of such people who do not see Jesus as He is, but a day is coming when God is going to give them perfect eyesight in both eyes. And every eye of every person will see Jesus when he arrives at his second coming or at some point thereafter. John's statement here means that when Christ comes at his second coming, everyone on earth will see him, and then don't miss this, according to his words, even those who pierced him will see him. This means that even those who participated in the crucifixion, which led to his piercing thousands of years prior will end up beholding Christ at His coming or at some point thereafter when they're brought before Him for judgment and they personally see His glory. In fact, there's three everys in the New Testament when it comes to Jesus in glory. We're told here that every eye will see Him. In Philippians 2, we're told that every knee will bow to Him and we're told in Philippians 2 that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone, every eye, every knee, every tongue. And thirdly, John says here that all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And what's interesting is Zechariah 12 suggests that a, among the Jews, this mourning will be a mourning of repentance wrought upon them by the Spirit of God causing them to look to Jesus and cry out to Him. We'll learn later in this book that many Jews will be saved during the tribulation period, and many will be saved at Christ's second coming, and their salvation will be accompanied by tears of repentance and mourning over the fact that Jesus was ever rejected, that one so wonderful as Jesus was ever rejected by His own people. And it seems that John even goes beyond the prophecy of Zechariah and tells us here in the text that all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Perhaps there will be some Gentiles who mourn in genuine repentance during the tribulation period and believe in Christ and, 
and who even repent at Christ's second coming. But for those who don't, they will mourn over the judgment that will now befall them because they did not believe in Jesus. And John is emphatic in his affirmation of this outcome. He says, so it is to be, amen. And you could translate that, indeed, so be it. Yea, verily, so be it. John has no doubt that such things are destined to happen, and he is in full and hearty agreement with these things coming to pass. He's enthusiastic about Christ's coming in the clouds to the great joy of his saints. He's enthusiastic about Christ being seen by every eye in his glory. John's in hearty agreement with the repentance of those who will look to Jesus in faith and believe in him. And John is in hearty agreement even with the wave of terror and weeping that will come over all those who have rejected Christ. And he says, so it is to be. Amen. There's a sixth and final feature of this tantalizing cover that John puts on the book of Revelation. Number six, a revealing word from God about Himself. A revealing word from God about Himself. Listen to what God Himself says in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There are three things that God says about Himself here. First, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. In our language today, God is saying, I am the A and the Z. And speaking of Himself this way, God is saying that He was around before anything else was. And He is the beginning of, the author of all things who started it all. And he's also saying that he will outlast all things that will die out. He's also saying that his sovereign plan prevails all the way from A to Z and will culminate in his glory. We are right now in the year 2020. And what a year it has been. And I don't know where we are in the alphabet of human history. We may be at G, or we may be at X, or at Y. What I do know is that we're heading to Z, and that Z is God. He is the beginning of history, and He is the end. All things come from Him, and everything leads to Him. In the end, there is God. Here in verse 8, God also describes Himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the timeless one. This is the second time that God has described Himself or is described this way, even in these first few verses of Revelation. God describes Himself here as the unchanging and everlasting God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to take comfort in this truth of God during these crazy changing times times are a changing but god never changes he's the one who is and the one who is is the one who was and the one who was is the same one who is to come same god immutable never changes 
Thirdly, God describes himself as the Almighty. It's interesting, guys, in all the New Testament, up to the book of Revelation, God is called the Almighty only one time in the New Testament. Yet in the book of Revelation, he's called the Almighty nine times. This word speaks of God's unbridled power to do all that he pleases and to make anything he wants to come to pass with irresistible power such that nothing is impossible with him because he rules over all of nature and all creatures. He is perfectly capable of bringing to pass anything and everything he desires whenever he desires to bring it to pass. And no one can even stop his hand and say, what are you doing? Aren't you glad we have a God like this who is almighty? Imagine having a God who sincerely wishes the best for us, yet he's not almighty and he's limited by forces that are stronger than us. Imagine having a God like that, but God is the opposite of that. He is the almighty. And guys, we can bank our hope on that. Because he's almighty, everything promised in the book of Revelation we know will come true. Because no one can stop the almighty from doing what he intends to do. And with these words in verses 1 through 8, the book of Revelation begins. There's no book of the Bible that begins with such explosive, powerful, epic, sweeping words like we find in these first eight verses. And it's going to get even more amazing in the... Um, verses in the rest of this chapter. And I would encourage you to come back next Sunday as we pick up in verse 9 and see John beholding Christ in His glory, describing what he sees. But before we close this evening, I want, I want us to think about how much the Christians in A.D. 95 needed to hear even what John has said in these first eight verses and what he's going to be saying through the book of Revelation. A whole generation and a half has passed since Christ died and was raised and made amazing promises to his followers. The church of Jesus Christ is now about 60 years old by the time that Revelation is being written. And the church doesn't seem to be getting very far. And it's riddled with problems. As Leon Morris, the commentator, says, and I quote, the church continued to be a tiny group, doubtless adding a few members from time to time, but not looking like becoming a mighty force to take over the Roman Empire. That empire continued on its wicked way. Oppression and wrong abounded. Evil men prospered. Idolaters persisted in their idol worship, and the cult of the emperor flourished. Because they would not conform, the tiny band of Christians found themselves the object of suspicion and sometimes outright persecution. A few of them were killed and some of them were put into prison. Where was the promise of Christ's coming? Was it all a delusion? Was Christianity a fine religion for the sanctuary, but totally unable to cope with the demands of the forum and the capital? Must they conclude that Christianity was a pretty delusion which must inevitably be shattered on the hard rocks of social and political realities? 
was real power in the hands of the emperor and his associates. Morris continues by saying this, in this book, the book of Revelation, John makes his point that the future belongs not to the Roman emperor, nor to any human potentate. It belongs to no man or group of men, but only to Christ, the Christ who was crucified for the salvation of us all. He it is who can open the book of human destiny. All of us and the destiny of all of us are in His hands. We need the same reminder today, and we're going to get this reminder in the coming weeks and months. Our destiny is not shaped by the Democrat Party or by the Republican Party. Our destiny is not shaped by the richest 12 men on our planet or by the Illuminati or by George Soros or by the deep state. Our destiny is in the hands of Jesus Christ, Almighty God, and only Jesus has the power to save. In his speech on Thursday night, President Donald Trump spoke about Joe Biden and said, and I quote, Joe Biden is not the savior of the soul of America, unquote. And he's absolutely right. And neither is Donald Trump or anyone else, the savior of the soul of America. Jesus is the only one who can be the savior of our souls. And our souls need saving. Let us not forget that. This November, we will be casting our votes for president, but we will not be casting our votes for Messiah because we already have a Messiah and his name is Jesus. And if you have never done so yet, I urge you to look to Jesus and believe in him and call upon his name for salvation. Come to him in your bankruptcy and with your sins and confess your sins to him and ask him through his shed blood at the cross to deliver you from the guilt of your sins and the power of your sins and to make you to be a priest in his kingdom and to make you his bond slave, joyfully held captive by the cords of his amazing love being completely cared for by him. It's a decision that I know that you will never regret. And it will be if you come to Jesus and believe in him and become his bond slave, it will then make you one of the bond slaves to whom this amazing book was actually written. And you will also find that there is no greater freedom than slavery to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this book and the opportunity that we have as a congregation to read through this book, a verse at a time, a section at a time, and to study what you are saying to us through this book, 
even as I have spent time in recent weeks studying chapter one through the length of the chapter, uh, and as we've read it as a congregation through the length of the book, I'm I'm just feeling this book working on me in a in a deep and rich way that is special and unique, and I treasure it, Lord. And I'm asking you to do every bit of the work that you desire to do in me as we go through this book and do the work that you desire to do in all of us. May you draw all of us closer to yourself, make us more holy, more fully surrendered to you, more focused on you, Lord Jesus. More surrendered to your amazing love. And may May non-believers hear what is in this book and see the revelation of Christ presented and be drawn by you, Lord, to, to the Lord Jesus and be saved through the vision of Christ that is in this book. Lord, we need your deep work within us. All of us do. and We just confess our need and we invite you and give you full permission to work in our lives through this book, that we would be among those who read and who hear and who give heed to the things that are in this book. We are your slaves, and we ask you to do this in us. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said.